0: Welcome to the Eric Anders Lang Show, everybody. I think first, uh, Tony, can you tell me a little bit about where we are on planet Earth, just just a little bit? T- Tony Rule, you're a longtime member of Royal Melbourne. I am,
1: and where we are on planet Earth is a long way from where you come from. So, Melbourne is down in the south of uh, Australia. Most uh, international travelers gravitate to Sydney first. But uh, coming to Melbourne is where you get the best golf. There's no question that uh, Melbourne has the best golf courses in the country. And uh, I might be a bit biased, but I think we've got uh, some of the best golf courses in the world too.
0: But that's, that's, uh, you, you say it in a way where, I mean, not only did I agree with you before you said it, but you say it in a way that it's not subjective. And, and, uh, but that's, all, that's, a, that's almost true geographically. It's not even a creative thing. It's just, it's just the land is suited for the golf.
1: Absolutely. So if you think about some of the best golf courses in the world, most of them are on sand, and, and that's what we've got here. It's called the Sand Belt. And with Royal Melbourne, I guess what, and, and to a similar extent, Victoria, which is immediately across the road, is what distinguishes them from Kingston Heath and Metropolitan is that there's a lot more movement in the ground at Royal Melbourne and Victoria because we're closer to the water and there's a lot more depth to the sand here at Royal Melbourne. We, we were building uh, dams because we've had some water issues and over the last 10 years or so and the sand goes down for like 30 feet. It's ridiculous. And that is why you can get such firm greens, which is what Richard Forsyth, our course, Superintendent is that's his key focus. Get the greens firm, and it makes it uh, a fantastic challenge when when the greens are really firm. And hopefully, we'll see that this week.
0: I'm I'm having the experience that I have when I feel like we're about to do a good podcast, where I want to ask you 90 questions. So I'm just going to go try to back up a little bit and explain to those people listening at home, wherever you are, that right now we're. I'm going to just describe the room for a second. So we got. Like a, like a, it's actually funny enough. This is like a, a pea s- split pea green, uh, plaid, f- uh, carpet, which will come back to the soup. I need to get back to the Royal Melbourne soup cause I've never had a, it's unparalleled. Anyway, the, the and we're in the clubhouse here and, 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 uh, the best golfers in the world are all in the backyard prepping for the tournament this weekend. That'll probably be over by the time this podcast is out. I've done. But you
1: <laughs> oh when the podcast is the out. The podcast is <laughs> be out in a couple
0: of days. But but uh, Tony you're seated on the couch next to Richard Hat. You you are a uh, you're the the head pro here for 26 years. That's correct. Yeah. And so I guess I'm curious about um, maybe you guys can go back and forth and talk a little bit about the community at Royal Melbourne. You know, cuz everyone's talking about it now because of the the best players in the world playing here and and this incredible course with all the history, but you know i mean here we have you know you've devoted your life from your work standpoint of being here and tony you've devoted your i mean you've spent a lot of work here as well but you're a member here is that is that can you talk a little bit about how that's different maybe for the listeners in america and how they kind of have a different view of it especially richard we started to talk about volume of memberships and price and tony i don't know if you could feel like just just to, from a sliver point of view explaining how being a member at a private club is different here than it is in America. Well, I guess that's my topic because I am chairman of membership. <laughs> uh, but and can but,
1: I but what I would say is that w- Australian golf is modelled on, on the UK model. Uh, rel- relatively affordable golf. Uh, we've got a lot of golf courses uh, in Australia. We're blessed with the number of golf courses in the country. So good golf is readily accessible. Uh, so it differs to the US model where you've got uh, quite small memberships. We, our playing membership is 1800. Bear in mind, we've got two golf courses. So let's say the elite golf clubs in the US would have 300 members. Uh, this being an elite golf club in Australia, we have 900 members per course. Is it it actually busy, though? Does it ever feel...? It it can get busy. uh, If it's a nice day and it's a nice time of year for golf, March, April, you get some beautiful days for golf here. Uh, And it does get quite busy. But uh, funnily enough, whether it's people's lifestyle or the age of our membership, I'm not sure. It's perhaps a little bit of both. When you say
0: age, do you mean...? What, what does it skew? Well, our,
1: our average membership age is about 56, I think, for men and a little bit older for women. Okay. So Thursday, midweek golf, is big. Really? It is big. So the, me- the, women p- the Wednesday is their big day. Okay. Thursday is the men's big day. When I first joined here, which was uh, 35, 36 years ago or so, there was just no
0: Thursday golf. So how old were you when you joined? I was a junior, so I joined when I was about 20. That's incredible. See see yeah. that alone is really the most interesting thing. It's like 20-year-old you're the only thing you're going to join is like, you know, uh the 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 range ball discount package in the United States. There's there's it's not really possible. And so here they do a good job of cultivating youth golf.
1: Yeah, well I I'll put you put Richard out and talk talk about what we do in terms of trying to promote young people into the game because Golf in Australia, in terms of participation, is flatlining a bit, if not declining, in the post-Norman era. So, but I'll get Richard to talk about the programs that we do for get, trying to get young people into the game.
0: Yeah, please do. I mean, you know, because this is not just uh, people listening to the podcast; it's not just golfers, golf customers, golf users. It's also people that administrators that work in golf that have the ability to affect some type of a change. I don't know. I don't know if anybody listening has not seen the episode of, we did of Adventures in Golf from Israel, where they talked all about there's one golf course in Israel. That's it. And so they had to do these things that you know you would never think about doing, offering free lessons merely to get golf on people's radar. And they just sort of managed this thing, and now they have a busy club, and they're looking at opening another. So we don't have to struggle with that because golf is popular already, but it's sad to here you say that it's declining anyway richard what do you have to say about all this
2: um well before we get on to the uh the junior golf uh when i first came here 26 years ago even though it's got busier here it was uh extremely quiet and i remember we didn't have any time sheets which now we have time sheets so when members go to play at this golf course they put their name on a time sheet but when i first sorry came,
0: when you first came here what was your job at the time
2: uh, so i first came here as a teaching professional oh okay so i came here when i was 24 so i came as a teaching professional and uh Bruce Green, who was the professional here, for, with, who's been my partner, who retired a year and a half ago, he uh, offered me a job to come and teach here, which I thought would be fantastic, because you could never get on to Royal Melbourne to use their practice facilities and all all their, uh, everything they had for the practice grounds. And uh, so I had a meeting and he said to me, uh, I'd like you to be, and I thought that'd be great. So I asked, when do I start? He said, tomorrow, so. <laughs> which is in true Bruce form. So I turned up with my golf clubs. Was that and, terrifying or exciting? Um, it wasn't terrifying. I, I I turned up with my golf clubs and I practiced on the range and hitting golf balls. And then uh, a member like Tony would come and have a practice and these, Bruce would commandeer them to have a lesson. Oh, so that's the funny. first probably two or 300 lessons I gave, no one ever wanted a lesson. <laughs> he just <laughs> said, you know, you got to help the young fella out and give him a sort of, you know, and... Uh, and at that stage i still had in a vision of you know being a player like the rest um and i'm probably glad when i went out and even watched the junior president's cup uh yesterday and even just watched a few of the boys here before i think i made the right choice with going in the direction that i went (laughs) um i'd probably be much more skinny than i am now but um that was a um so that started and one lesson went to two and two went to three and then it just grew and grew as it went from there and then uh I became quite popular. Then I got offered a, a position at another golf club. And Bruce, I uh, told Bruce I was going to take this position. And he said to me, I've been thinking a long time that maybe we should join together. And that's how we joined. So after three years here, I then became a joint head professional with him for the last um, 21 years. And then and then he just retired a year and a half ago. So I've continued on solely as a head pro. Right. Um, but getting back to what we're talking about, those before we get on to that, with the... Um, we used to have a ball race on the first tee. I don't know if you've ever heard ball of the A ball race? A ball race.
0: Never heard of so it. So it
2: was like a tube that was on a slight tilted angle on a stand. And it had a hole at one end and another hole at the other. And when you came onto the green, you would drop your ball that you were going to play into this tube and it would roll to the bottom. And all they'd do is you'd lift it out. Whoever's next ball was there was the person who would hit off the tee. You remember that, Tony, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Th- this, no, this is I, the way of this is how finding it. a so, partner. So
1: when I was first joined... It was a very traditional club. You needed to have a coat and tie to go into into the club. You you, you couldn't into the clubhouse. You you uh, traditionally on a Sunday you would go into the dining room and you you might have roast beef or something, a bit of Yorkshire pudding or something like that. Kind of a Muirfield situation. It's a, well, yeah. I've not enjoyed their their uh enjoyed. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't. I have been to Muirfield, but I didn't get to to enjoy their lunch, which I here is pretty good but anyway uh, and you'd have you might have a glass or two of red or something like that and then you'd get out to the tea and you'd put your ball in in the race and this was a Sunday afternoon and there may only be five or six groups going out so that has wow. in that context it has it has changed quite a lot now membership now is uh, is, is quite a deal larger than it was when I first joined. But apart apart from being on membership, I'm also the chair of the History and Archives uh, Committee and I've been looking at past records where at one point there was only 500 members of the club. Wow. This would have been maybe in the 1950s, early 1950s. Early in its history. Well, relatively early in its history. The club was formed in 1891. Memory okay, and we moved uh, originally. The club was in what is now pretty much inner city Melbourne. Mm-hmm. We moved to a suburb called Sandringham in 1905, and then Mackenzie visited in 1926,
0: which was a significant part of the club's development. Was that important for the club's ultimate success? Do you believe? Absolutely, yep. So Unfortunately,
1: people who are listening really need to come and have a look at some of our old photos and and the things that we've got in archives. But golf holes were very penal at that period Mm. in the early 1900s. And it was Mackenzie that really introduced this strategic nature of golf courses. So uh, there's a hole for those people who are listening that want to come here... And appreciate the difference between a penal golf hole and strategic, then it is no better illustrated than on the 15th of the West Course, where you've got mounds that were there in 1905 that go all the way, heavily grassed mounds that go all the way across the fairway, and bunkers that would go all the way across the fairway. And you can still see the indentations in the turf where those bunkers used to be. So the 15th of the West dates to 1905, but when Mackenzie came in, he uh, he rebunkered it, and, but he left the mounds there. But if you look at his 1926 plan of 15 West, the mounds have been removed on his drawings. Hmm. So there's some conjecture as to why he left it. But um, getting back to your question, was Mackenzie's visit significant, extremely significant because the way he changed the nature of, of, of the golf course. And also when he came here, the club sold some excess land and bought new land, so the west course, which is attributed to Mackenzie, some of the holes were there. There's uh, probably three or four that remain gen- in the general area where they were, and the rest of it's all new.
0: So. I'd like to not get into too many specifics because I can imagine most of the people listening are having a tough time with a frame of reference, visualizing the course, especially the way you can. I've played it once and, you know, aside from just a really magically, uh, you know, revealing round of golf where it seems like every time you turn a corner, it was just like, wow, wow, wow. Um, What do you think... You know, you talked a little bit about the the ball race. Is that right? Is that what you call it, mm-hmm. the ball race? Um, you know, as far as you you talked about holes moving from being penal to what would you say the word is strategic. strategic. Um, how would you say, in general, that that is experienced on a golf hole as a player? I mean, Royal Melbourne is obviously well, the example I, what here. I,
1: what the the key. The way Mackenzie designed a course is that, and you can see this on the drawings that he did for Royal Melbourne, is that he would highlight two ways to play the golf course and he would draw lines. So for the weaker player there's a line going and avoiding the trouble and going to the to the to where there's fairway and then for the stronger player he would have these things that he called heroic carries where you would... Attempt to, to fly the bunkers to get you in the best position to put your next shot on the green. So that, so that he's, is truly strategic. In in it, the hole is playable by all golfers. Of by in terms
0: of their ability. So does this relate on some level to the line of charm? Are you familiar with that? I'm not really familiar with the line of charm. So it's, so basically, Mackenzie would say, there's two ways to do this. There's the easy way, but that's going to wind you up with some more complications later. Or you can do it the hard way, which will be, is it is that kind of what it is? You sort of ever faced with an easy decision in the beginning or a hard decision in the beginning? Is that kind of a, a good example?
1: Well, let's put it this way. There's an easy, he gives you an easy way out. Uh-huh it gives you an easy way out. So that's the beauty of the golf course in that as much as weaker players enjoy it just as much as as the elite players.
0: I'm curious to know about and I, you know feel free to tag team here. I'm not sure how common this is in the United States to have a a course a, a, a member course with 36 holes. But the tournament is sort of an amalgamation of those 36. It's sort of 18 hand-selected holes that more or less aren't played very often by the
2: membership. Is that is that true? First of all, yeah, that is totally correct. Um, we play it on special occasions. How many times a year, Tony? Four.
0: Isn't that very popular? Is everyone super excited it for that? It is always booked out.
2: <laughs> non- non- <laughs> booked stop. out. Yeah, booked out. It goes all I mean, day. People I'm going to
0: sign up, and I'm not even welcome. <laughs> people hit all
2: day, and it, and that's you know sometimes I, I, I think to myself why why wouldn't we play it more often? But I can see why you know when it is it, when we do open it up, it is special. So we have uh, twelve of the west and six of the east uh, make up the composite course, which means when we're playing on the west course, we cross the road once, play over there, and we play four holes, and we come back over. And then on the east course, we play four holes, cross a road, play two holes, cross a road, and then we play out and come back in. So now we play on the inner boundaries. We don't cross any roads, so I guess that helps for security, for tournaments, keeping everything connected all together, less footprint of people moving all around. So, But it is um, it is special. And then for some, I don't know whether you'd say chance, Tony, or not, but they are the best holes by far.
0: Interesting.
1: It, it's on the best ground. But... Also, what I would say is that going from one course to the other is seamless. You wouldn't, if you came as a visitor and they put you on the composite course, you wouldn't pick which holes were which, east or west. And there's two reasons for that. The first one is that when Mackenzie came to Australia, he uh, met a guy, a member whose name was Alec Russell and they shared... St- and Russell Russell's a very good player in his own right. He won an Australian Open, funnily enough, here at Royal Melbourne in 1924. But they had similar thoughts on golf course architecture. And they actually formed a design company for Australia. So Russell and McKenzie were golf course architects uh, here in Australia as a business. And this is not Alistair McKenzie? Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is? Alistair McKenzie... And Alec Russell formed a design company. And it was Russell who designed the East Course. But the same person constructed both both courses. And his name was Mick Morecambe. And he was a greenkeeper here for 40 years or something. And they dug all the bunkers with a horse and a scoop. So it took, and there's a lot of bunkers on Royal Melbourne, and they're big and it took them five years to build the West Course.
0: Uh, that's significantly longer than I would have guessed. The
1: West, When Mackenzie came in 1926, the course didn't open until 1931.
0: Um, I guess I'm curious to hear a little bit more, and Tony, I'm sure you know a tremendous amount about this, um, the relationship between Mackenzie and Russell... Uh, I guess really where I kind of came into this story was at uh, this course in Wellington called uh, Paraparaumu, which I was pretty, pretty excited to find. Uh, that is just the best fun you'll ever have
1: on a golf course. It is brilliant, and it's got the one of the best par threes you'll ever play. The 16th it goes from the top of one dune to the top of another, and you miss it right, the ball just gets carried about. 50 feet away it is a brilliant golf hole the
0: the entire place I mean I just and you know part of it had the element of surprise for us and so that was exciting but learning a bit about that story and uh, comparing it with Titarangi later on on the on the wonderful trip we had in New Zealand um, and then kind of going back to my experience of playing here um, I just kind of began to be curious about the relationship between C.B. McDonald and Seth Rayner. And I don't know if that's – they didn't make it down here, obviously, so it's not as popular as these McKenzie courses. But I'm, I'm kind of just interested in the idea that, you know, we talked about it a little bit. Uh, Mackenzie came down here for six weeks uh, just before he was working on Augusta and Cyprus. Something yes, it was. He came
1: in 1926, and Augusta was a bit after that. Uh, as was
0: Cyprus, Augusta and Cyprus of the early 30s, for memory. And he just came down here and basically came up with a lot of great ideas that were fulfilled by men like Alec Russell and the uh, superintendent, uh, Mac... Mick Morkham. Mick, Morgan. Mick Morgan. Hmm. Um And was there... A, we, we played Metropolitan this morning. Was there another McKenzie involved in that course? I'm um, not completely across uh, Mackenzie's influence
1: at <laughs> Metropolitan. That Metropolitan has had, unfortunately, in the 60s, some of their holes were taken from them by the state government to build a school. Uh, so they got an architect from the US called Dick Wilson who effectively built an entire new back 9 for them and... Uh, and then uh, Mike Clayton and his team have done work there. But at the moment, it's, the work's being done by Paul Mogford and Neil Crafter, who've been doing work at Barwon Heads, which you haven't been to, you must.
0: Yeah, I, 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 uh, it's on my list. And for some reason, uh, it just, it, it's, it's uh, can you tell me what it means, Barwon Heads? Like, like, what is it, what's the point of going? Because it's not on the sandbelt.
1: No, but it's, it's uh, on the coast. It's got fantastic views, but also the first six holes, there's like craters and off the fairway and fantastic movement in the ground. It's not long, but it's very windy because the course is very exposed. Uh, we talked about the 16th at Paraparam. The 13th at Bowen heads is about 130 meters and once again you, you elevated T to this green and if you miss a green, you're doing very well to get up and down. It's just it's just a different golf course. It's got a different feel about it. It's not vanilla, which is what you want to look for in golf courses.
0: Yeah, I definitely like everything but vanilla.
1: You, 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 you would love Hirono where I've just come back from. Oh Tokyo and, and it's in Kobe, yeah. three hours south of Kobe. And uh, Martin Ebert has
2: just restored it pretty much. It's phenomenal. Anyway, uh, Rich. Uh, just on that 13th hole at Bowen Heads, am I right in saying that one of our members who... The, all of our members are members of Bowen Heads, but one of our members, Richard Allen, was playing with his brother-in-law, and he holes out on that hole, and his brother-in-law holes out as well. No way. It's in the Guinness Book of Records. Is it really? Yeah. That's incredible. They both hold out playing in the same group, brother-in-laws, on that same hole on the 13th.
0: They're related in many ways now. Correct. Um, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. We'll be right back. We're going to dig into a little bit more of the President's Cup and maybe some more general golf in Australia information. Folks, you've heard me talk about it, and I'm not talking about... Never mind. I'm talking about Precision Pro. You've heard me talk about them. I got a chance to meet these guys. I went out to Cincinnati. spent the, I spent four years with them in one week. It was incredible. Anyway, uh, what's the main thing that golfers have in their bag that they're going to use most during a round. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a putter. I'm not talking about your favorite iron. I'm not talking about your right arm to flag the beverage cart. I'm talking about your range finder. All golfers need a range finder that they can trust to know the precise distance in their target for nearly every shot, whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway. That's true. Honestly, I've thought about using it for putting just so I can be super accurate because putting is obviously lagging a little bit. Getting a phone call, folks. Um, Anyway, I carry the NX-9 HD rangefinder by Precision Pro Golf. It's easy to use, incredibly fast, and most importantly, it gives me the exact yardage to my target so I can choose the right club and swing with confidence. I actually love pulling it out. People are like, what is that? I'm like, it's Precision Pro. Get down with the green and blue, my guy. Green and gray, I mean. Um, Not to mention, Precision Pro offers free battery replacement services for the life of your rangefinder. We all know how annoying it is to run out of batteries, but you get an extra one when you get it and then you get rangefinder batteries throughout the like I said life of your rangefinder. So you're not only getting a rangefinder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. So really it just depends on how long you live and at that point that's where the podcast sort of that's where it just drops off and it's up to you at that point. Live healthy, obviously. Play don't play golf and lightning. Uh don't don't shoot adventures in golf because that that we've talked about that with my insurance company and it does decrease my lifespan. But, you know, it increases the benefits, and we all have fun. We've all signed up. Me and the crew have all signed. Uh, it's like an NDA for your life. Good news. The NX9 HD Rangefinder is on sale for $40 off. Even better, listeners of the podcast can receive an extra $10 off by using the coupon code ERIC, E-R-I-K, at checkout. Go to PrecisionProGolf.com and use the coupon code ERIC at checkout for $50 off the NX9 HD Rangefinder today. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. All right, got gotta. Very, very special read from you. One read that fits into three stripes. Because you know how much I love the three stripes. And I'm very excited to share something with you. Who knows what that'll be. Some secrets, maybe? Some secrets in the dirt? No. Adidas took their knit game to a whole new level. And honestly, I've actually, I wore these just the other day. And I was pretty comfortable. And pretty tethered to the ground. Anyway. um, Have you seen the new Tor 360 XT Prime Knit? That was just released. Um, It's the first waterproof knit that they've ever had. So what you get there is a lot of flexibility around your little old feet. Or big old feet. Depending on what size your foot is, obviously. Although your foot may be big in stature. But not so much in, you know. You can have a big foot but still have a small size. You know what I mean? Anyway, they come with a one-year waterproof warranty. And three fresh new colorways so you can stand out on the course. It's important to stand out. Sometimes if your golf game, no, anyway, uh, it's built on the XT Traction sole, so you get amazing grip, but it's still lightweight and comfortable. That is true. Anyway, head over to adidas.com slash US slash golf to snag a pair and follow Adidas Golf on Instagram and Twitter to stay updated on all of their newest releases. Until then, see you out there it looking fresh. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you, you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. All right, we're back. But we did take a minute and just go full golf geek about Mackenzie and greens and par threes. Now, I mean... Richard, is there another part of the world that's quite as concentrated with incredibly high-quality golf, incredibly historic golf, and, and, and yet it's, you could maybe, some might say it's kind of similar because it's all part of this sand belt geographic area, but each course is its own personality, its own membership, its own history. Is there another place in the world like it?
2: I wouldn't think, I mean, the closest I can think of maybe is around that Monterey Peninsula. You know, they have, a you know, courses around that area and those things. But it is very unique here. I mean, it's a, it's a hidden gem. I mean, most Americans, you know, if they get past the flight of 14 hours to get here. Once they get here, it's fantastic. I mean, we speak the same language. We, you can drink the water, you know, I mean. Um, I
0: thought you were going to say you can drink at 18. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you can too, so they're probably happy with that. But you can eat, the food's great. And and just to come down here and once you get here, it's so close. You know, yeah. they're all in a vicinity of really, really tight. Within, you know, a space of fifteen kilometers, you're going from one course to the next. You know, I went into the States in two thousand and we played right across, but we had to go from one side to the other to be able to play all those great courses that sure. we went across. Pretty so, disparate.
0: Yeah. How do you describe Melbourne as a city?
2: Uh, as they always say, extremely livable. I mean, uh, uh, it's it's ever for changing. Like yesterday we had thirty nine degrees. And this That's morning,
0: 100 degrees Fahrenheit.
2: And then this morning we had cold wind and rain. I mean, it just it, changed overnight. It was about
0: 58 this morning. And I, was I don't know what happened.
2: Talking to a few of the young Prison's Cup boys and some of their parents, and they just couldn't believe it. You know, they just couldn't believe that no. it would change that quickly.
0: I was looking at the weather map, the weather calendar, and it was like 60, 60, 58, 65, 100 Fifty-eight, and I was like, "What's happening on Monday? Why is it a hundred degrees all of a
2: sudden?" Yeah, it doesn't change, and that's we often say all uh, four seasons in one day. We often yeah. say that for Melbourne. You know, you come wearing your t-shirt in the morning, <laughs> followed by your jacket on, waterproofs on. By the end of the day, you're back into your bathers. I
1: enjoyed it. What do you have to say, Tony? There, there, there's a very simple reason for such uh, <laughs> significant temperature changes, and it depends on where the wind blows. But you get a hundred degrees because it comes from the north, straight off the desert. And when it swings around to the south, south, it comes straight
0: off the ocean. So that explains the dramatic changes in temperature. Literally 45 degrees in temperature shift. Tony, did you grow up around here? Sorry? Where did you grow
1: up? I grew up in uh, what's called Western Victoria. Okay. It's a little place called Warrnambool. And I used to play my golf at a, a little club called Port Ferry, which Mike Clayton's been doing some work on now for 10 or 15 years. It's not a wealthy club by any means. Uh, costs about $600 to be a member. Little small town with about 2,500 people. But the, it is an absolute classic links course. A number of the holes are right in the dunes with great views and similar to Bowen Heads, very exposed and very windy. The ball, it like gets
0: so windy, the ball oscillates on the tee. That's when you know it's winning. <laughs> Not even on the green with the tee. How would you describe, you know, it sounds like you've played golf in a few different places and countries and continents. How, when you come home, when you come back to Australia, specifically Melbourne, how do you describe that feeling of, of playing golf here? Uh, that's a tough question.
1: Look, I I love travelling and playing other other... Golf in other countries. I think you can learn things from wherever you go. We we were talking about what areas would be similar to this. Well, the Berkshire and you've got the Berkshire. You've got Sunningdale. You've got uh, Wentworth. Although not too sure about some of the recent course changes at Wentworth, but you've got some classic golf courses. All new, there's a golf course called New Zealand. What's a, the cult? There's a cult course. Uh, Swinley Forest which Mm. is uh, unfortunately I've never had the opportunity to play but people who play Swinley Forest rave about it as being a great experience and I so I I really do think that's uh, that's great and then and then last year I was very fortunate I went to Southport and we played Birkdale, Lytham and Hoylake three days straight so I think they're all different but but the one thing that you will get here that you won't get anywhere else. The quality of the bunkering, it's, in, in some, it's, it's almost like it's artistic,
0: the way the bunkers have been designed. You mean uh, as far as depth and space and the quality of the sand and the size? And the shape. The shape. Mm-hmm. I mean, the bunkers here are both stunning and terrifying. I mean, they are terrifying, especially when you're in them. But they're all very fair and consistent, which is also very unusual. Mm. That that level of consistency with uh, a hard wall, a soft bottom, reasonably—it's—it's—it's it's, it's reasonable to expect that after one or two of them, you should be able to get out of them pretty easily. Mm.
1: I, I just think that the, the, the shape of them—it just—it's something quite unique to Melbourne, to the
2: sandbelt. Yeah, I agree. You, you know, when you play around the world, they just. You can't... It's almost like you can't make bunkers like that anymore. I don't, mm. I'm not sure how. I mean, you see all these brand-new courses with all this technology. But some of these bunkers here are just so beautiful. And do and, and we have a lot of aerial shots from those drones now. They are magnificent. And there's a great whole fourth of the West, which is the second of the composite course of the President's Cup. But they have a drive bunkers there, which are beautiful. And to stand up on top of that hill and look back and see that, you just... You can't make them. I don't know how they why they can't make them, but I remember... Ben Crenshaw came here and played. It might have been a World Cup. And I remember after he finished that tournament, he went out on the composite course. He walked the whole course <laughs> and walked every bunker and looked at those bunkers and watched them and took photos because he just, you know, how do you get them to look like that? I mean, maybe it was the, the way they dug them out by hand, Tony. Was that a fair comment? I think
1: the, the fact that they the, the, the rounded scoop that the horse used to cart to build them is one of the key reasons why you get the bunkers looking like they do. Right. Yeah. Where, rather than the square blade of a bulldozer.
0: Yeah, you have a little bit... A different tool offers a different outcome.
1: The other thing is, the difference here is that um, the greens have got a lot of movement in them, mm. but they're beautiful to putt on. And you can get... they're, they're Our... Uh, Green staff here spend an awful lot of time trying to get rid of power, which is a problem for a lot of golf courses around the world, but they've done a brilliant job in doing it. You don't like it down here?
0: No. Why not? I would think it'd be great down here.
1: Well, what happens is that it grows. Well, you know the issues with power, it grows quickly and you get get uneven, you get an uneven uh, roll, and so that's why we don't like it. and... We've got uh what's called Sutton's mix. it's a mix of bent grasses in it, and if you get power in the greens, it'll grow quicker than the bent and then you'll get a really rough yeah uh, a rough roll and so we don't like it in the greens
0: more power too I mean they love it over at pebble
1: <laughs> yeah well all 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 of California pretty much yeah. mean, we don't is, have a choice Cy- Cypress is power for memory. yeah
0: yeah yeah um i I'm not sure I can adequately rep- – first of all, before the podcast is over, where is the – what
2: the birds? Is that – what, what – these are you birds. Know, I was thinking about what – that you could hear that noise in the background. Absolutely can hear that's it. That's actually the flue on top of the open fireplace that sits up on top that's twisting around that's following oh, the that's wind. Oh, that's not birds. It's not, but I thought oh. you would ask that at some point. But it's the we're sitting right next to the fireplace here, and above oh. is the, a flue that moves around and catches the air. And because it's windy outside today, it's moving around squeaking. You yeah. we'll probably need to put some oil on that. Because we plant, <laughs> get that's some no oil. Beats. But we do have plenty of birds here. We have some uh some crows that um uh, which just you know, digressing. we have some crows here that uh are very <laughs> aggressive and out on the putting green they they'll come and open the open your bag and take your lunch out of your bag. Yeah, I've had that happen. Yeah, in the pro shop we've been me. we've been getting them training them up to get watches and wallets and all That's sorts smart. of things, so yeah, That's smart. Been, they're quite good.
0: Focus on the uh you know, pre-1960 timepieces that'd be great. Yeah. Um they uh at Meltro they had a uh a great selection of birds with mohawks and great haircuts.
2: Yeah, we have, we, have, we have a lot of great bird life down here, and especially, well, there's bird life here as well a lot, but in Metro they have lovely high trees, you know, those big gums uh. and things like that, so they obviously attract a lot of that birds where we have a lot more lower foliage here and things like that, but there's plenty of birds we have. I, I did
1: actually see a photo that someone showed me this morning. There's an animal here called a blue-tongued lizard. Have oh. you heard of a blue tongue lizard? I haven't. They're quite they're about a foot long. They're quite a big lizard okay. with a blue tongue, not surprisingly. <laughs> and anyway, there was one in the men's locker room, which I've never really? I've got no idea how it got there. I've never seen a blue tongue lizard on the course, let alone in the men's locker room. I feel
0: like you're about to deliver a great joke. <laughs> <laughs> so I, before and then so we've we've covered the bird uh you know, you know, experience. But the next thing is I'm not sure I can adequately describe to anyone at home who hasn't been here. When you talk about the greens being hard, it's not a it's 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 a meaning. It's very real. They are hard. I don't I can't think of many things that are as hard that are not like a table. How, what, yeah. I don't know, it's insane.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I might lead off and Tony will do a lot more on that. But just uh, for us, you know, they, when people come and play here, they wonder, they're hard, but that's how we play them all the time. All the time. I can't remember the last time we repaired a pitch mark.
0: Not, yeah, no, you can't make a pitch mark. No, no. You couldn't make a pitch mark maybe if you threw a club. I mean, it is very hard. Yeah,
2: and bouncy. And I think that's, as Tony said before, with the sand here and the, and the way we prepare the course Richard Forsyth, you have to play that course to play for that that hardness you know i was watching early on in the juniors you know some of them were playing shots in there that they just thought they could get it to stop but you have to play at the front use the bounce and use the contours and you know this golf course can come up and bite you at any time sometimes you know it looks wide and generous off the fairways but if you're in the wrong spot and you've got a certain bouncy green you won't stop it It and it'll just roll over
0: i was very saddened when on my second shot on the third hole of metro this morning i hit a wonderful seven iron downwind i thought i gave it more than enough room and it just it landed like a, a yard short of the the hole and then just then just jumped almost off the property and that's that's a normal thing here yep. you you just literally start playing front do you basically look for a number front edge of the green tony no, i'm not that good a golfer <laughs> uh richard Mott. um I'm just happy to try and hit one
1: out of the mill, but <laughs> but um, picture this: the there's on the our uh, fifth of the west. it's the third of the course this week. It's 160 meters or something, and you hit your tee shot there, and you can hear the ball land on the green. <laughs> now, how many other golf courses in the world does that happen? Oh, it's never happened to me anywhere else.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, And for the agronomists out there, if if there's any course superintendents listening, uh, we had a tournament here earlier in the year and the greens were really firm. And I said to the guys, what's your moisture content? And he
0: said 10%. So they run them pretty lean. Yeah, that's that's technically speaking, that's dehydrated for a human body. So I don't know, I don't know what that is for a green. I'm supposed to be ninety percent water, I thought.
2: <laughs>
0: um, any questions for me? We're
2: about done. No, I haven't got any questions for you, Tony. You got any?
1: I've
0: got one. How did you get involved in doing all this?
2: <laughs>
0: uh, I mean that's a great question. Uh, it started off as a fascination with tour guides when I was a kid. We would go on trips with my parents, and I would just ask the tour guide a thousand questions. Then I learned how to do that with a video camera, and then I got interested in golf. And and I mean I'm not I'm I hope I'm taking your answer ser- your question seriously, but that is basically what happened is I became a filmmaker. Then I got interested in golf, and then I fell in love with golf, and now it's. Um, that The ridiculous joke of my life is that it, it that really is my job is to just go around and play golf and ask questions and, you know, not offend anybody in the in the so doing. <laughs> so I I, uh, I really appreciate your guys's time. And uh, I guess I could do a little bit more about, you know, you've had these pro golfers here before in your tenure as a member and as a club uh, steward, right, Tony? But but it must feel pretty incredible to have them use it calling this their home for the week. Yeah, well, one of our members actually wrote a really good
1: article about this yesterday. But it, to to watch these guys play the golf course, it's I can. There's a shot Mickelson hit from eight years or not two thousand eleven, so eight years ago. I can still picture the shot. It was just this driver purposely cut round the corner on on uh, it was on eleven west. It was just like. It just blew my mind to watch how he could work the ball around the course and the way they, the way they play the course. And I was watching Ben Arn playing bunker shots on, on the short uh, fifth hole this morning and playing shots. I'm just going, that's just a ridiculous amount of skill to, to be able to do that. I, I think that um, that's what I love, just watching and seeing how good these guys are.
0: Because you have something to compare it to. You, you know that these greens are very hard. You know that they're going to run away. So in order to see someone to take a bunker shot that's maybe downhill, down grain, you say that's impossible to stop and that they somehow keep it within five feet, whereas on TV you're like, uh, eh, good shot. You can't see the the, but, the difficulty. Correct. There's a lot of slope on our greens
1: that people... that the that, that TV doesn't highlight. So the fourth green... Has a lot of slope, so much so that
0: only about ten percent of its pinnable. It's a big grain. Wow! So that um, must make the super's job. Do you think that makes it easier or hard? He's got ways and means around it, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> which I won't go into.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> what's that, Richard? He doesn't have any trouble putting any pin position because there's only about two on it. So <laughs> right, he knows right. where to put it each time. So right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm gonna go. Uh, I, I would. I would like to end on. You know, I. I. Um. I played out here, and it was cold. And that's common. I'm learning in Melbourne, but uh, we were met on the uh, sixth hole by a small golf cart that had a um a large plastic box on the back with a faucet attached to it, and the gentleman drove up and said would you like some soup? And I said, yeah, I mean, it's really cold. I would love some soup. And he, and he proceeded to, you know, it's like a coffee pot. And I'm describing this because you guys know what it is, but if you're listening to this, which you would be, otherwise you wouldn't be hearing what I'm saying. You, It's literally like a to go coffee container, but the faucet was like modified to manage the split pea soup that was about to come out of it. And I mean, I'm pretty sure I've never had a better experience with soup in general, much less soup on a golf course, much less soup on a golf course being delivered to me on a golf cart. When did the soup, when did the split pea soup recipe get created and how long has it been being delivered on a cart on cold days? We've probably done
2: soup now for the last five years or so. Is that, it's it's a relatively new, relative new. And that was basically like a big urn. And as you said, they've re- retrofitted the tap, make it yeah. wider. Cause obviously thicker soup can't get through the small. Somebody
0: life. went to like a plumbing
2: store yep, and, and created this. Yep. They had it all made up, uh, purpose built, custom built. That's um, what I
0: love. You get, you get, you get that at a club because who said, let's bring soup on the course. And then someone said, how do I bring soup on the course? I need to solve this problem. This is what I love about each club that I visit around the world. You know, like you're talking about Mirfield. Each club has its own little way of solving a problem. And I need to do a better job of keeping track of this stuff because it's really fascinating. What are you going to say, Well, Donald? There are some clubs that have the halfway huts. Not a lot. But
1: the best half- halfway hut I've ever seen is the one at the end of the 10th of Sunningdale Old. And it, for those people who've played it, it's an elevated tee, long path for pine trees either side and then you can just see at the end the halfway hut and
0: you're going, yes, <laughs> it's a horizon. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Bacon sandwich is what you have there when you get to there. Okay. I haven't played it yet, so I'm looking forward to that site. That's beautiful. I know the hole exactly. There's a big gauze bush on the left-hand side just before there.
0: Well, I look forward to enjoying the uh, the soup once again, and perhaps the composite layout one day. But I enjoy uh, the stories of Royal Melbourne and and how the world has, you know, embraced the history here and the future and everything. And I guess that's it. Unless you guys have anything else, any other
2: favorite golf quote, maybe. Um, well, outside, <laughs> obviously, Royal I'm just Melbourne's, not willing to end. <laughs> Royal Melbourne's always my favorite, but we were talking before. You know, my second favorite, really, around here is. Metropolitan.
0: No, I said favorite golf quote. Oh, favorite like, golf quote. Like uh, like the here five inches between your ears. Tony's got one. Yeah. Take us out on a good yeah, one I've, here. I've got this I was
1: telling a journalist this one this morning, of course, the Patrick Reed incident has been playing on people's minds a bit. And the thing about it to me is that he didn't he 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 blamed the fact that the camera angle made it look worse than it was. But I'd always remember the story about Bobby Jones in a US Open and he called a penalty on himself. He was removing a twig or something. The ball just moved slightly. No one else saw it. And Jones called a penalty on himself. And a spectator at the end of the play said to Bobby, Congratulations on, you know, doing the right thing and Jones responded, well, you might as well congratulate me for not robbing a bank. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, you know, that, that way of viewing the rules and the etiquette of the game is, is disappearing a little bit, which I, it's being, I'm a bit of an old school type, and I think that is disappointing that those things are happening
0: in the game at the moment. Well, I agree completely, and, and hopefully we can all um, take part in that um, and... Um I guess there's, I'm, I'm getting one last note coming in here. Uh, what, should we talk about how 7 West is not the original McKenzie hole and that it used to be played from a different direction and it was commonly referred to as Mount Misery? Remnants of this hole exist today. Tony, do you think this is relevant? <laughs> <laughs> as, at, at the wee, at the wee, uh, wee only, hours
1: only of the if podcast. I are a real history buff and... and uh... Yes, it is relevant in as much as neither Mackenzie or Russell designed it, which is interesting in itself because Russell was still alive at the time and still actively involved in the club. But it was designed by a chap by the name of Ivo Witten, who was a famous Australian golfer who won five Australian Opens. And uh, he he designed it in about 1937, for memory. Uh, As to who built it, I'm not sure, because that was getting towards the end of... Morecambe's tenure uh, and he trained up a fellow by the name of Claude Crockford who was, su- so Morecambe worked here for 35 years and then Crockford for 40. So for 75 years Royal Melbourne only had two greenkeepers or as they're called now course superintendents. So it's an immo- amazing, and even today uh, Richard's been here for, Richard Forsyth's been here for 10 years. And I think he's only about the seventh since the club was first formed in 1891. So that consistency is what makes Royal Melbourne really special because we haven't had high turnover and they've protected what what was left in 1926. And we spent a lot of time looking at aerial photos uh, just to make sure that we're not missing anything, that, right. that over time things haven't changed or a bunk has disappeared, or, or whatever, or changed shape. So we spend a lot of time looking at that.
0: I mean, that's that's something that more and more courses are doing. I think it's really important, especially as you look at, you know, where was the original architect? I mean, who are you crediting on the scorecard, right? We should have it back. Is there this soup, is it on the property right now, or is that only for non-President's Cup days? Soup. Do we know?
1: Well, you you. you wh-
0: Basically, you want some soup. Is that it?
1: I <laughs> yeah, just, we might not have the pea soup on right. today. We might have the pumpkin soup I today. Just, there's we, also pumpkin. Yeah, yeah. We've got we've got a number of varieties of soup. Like a if number you, of varieties. If you ever want to talk to you, tomato know, soup. Is when it really? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody. It's yeah.
0: perfect day for soup. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, on that note, can I offer you a soup? <laughs> Well, you know, the squeaky wheel gets oiled, and the squeaky flu, I guess it's also going to get oiled, too. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for your time, and uh, really looking forward to uh, spending more with you. Thank you. Thank you very much.